this is Catherine Lambrecht. Uh, welcome to June 2nd edition of Chicago Foodways Roundtable. Um, it's really nice to see you. And I think I think maybe this fall we actually might get to see each other in person and in the flesh. But we shall wait and see how that all evolves. Um, and I also want to point out, uh, not that you really care, but maybe you might, but I was <laughs> at the Chicago Dogs program. It was their opening on uh, Saturday. And I got this mustard costume, which is going to go down to the Mustard Museum. And I actually did wear it. If you wish to go find my page on Facebook, you'll see me wearing it. And it's a tight fit, but what did you expect? And you're welcome to put questions into the chat as we go, uh, because this is going to be kind of more of like of a conversation with this presenter. He's not exactly doing a straight presentation, uh, but that's what we agreed to do. Uh, it was something where this project he finished a few years ago, and he was doing presentations, but not so much anymore. And I said, rather than worrying about that, I'll read the book, which I just finished in the last maybe 40 minutes, and uh, I'll ask questions and you answer them. And that's how we, we got where we are. But the reason I was interested in the topic, well, it's food trucks, but it was also, uh, I had gone to a program from the University of Illinois Press, which is his publisher, and they were quite enthusiastic about the book. So I decided, well, what the heck, I will be interested to live and learn and find out what it's all about. Our speaker tonight is Robert Lemon. He has a PhD as a geographer. He, he's also, and I could have this slightly wrong, but he also has a degree as an urban planner. He also has a degree as a uh, horticulturalist landscaper, but if I get it wrong, it's his to correct. Um, so Robert, how about you explain, if you want to tell us more about yourself, that's fine, but I want to get to the, what is a geographer and how does, what does that mean? Uh, okay, well, I'll give you my explanation. And then I just remembered after having this conversation with you last night, I used to teach uh, introduction to human geography from this book, The Human Mosaic, who happened, the person who actually wrote this book was my mentor as an undergrad about 25 years ago. And it's just interesting that he still has the most prominent book. <laughs> it's the most prominent book in the human geography still to this day. It's been uh, revised and revised by many different geographers. Well, he opens up with a quote in the book from Hendrik Van Loon in 1932. And the quote says, uh, we shall find our planet inhabited by a weird and extraordinary variety of fellow borders. Many of them, upon first acquaintance, will appear to be possessed of general characteristics we would rather not encounter in our own children. And then he opens the book with this paragraph. Um, he says, humans are, by nature, geographers, like the irreverent Mr. Van Loon, whose delightful book challenges the very xenophobia he expresses tongue-in-cheek above. We are curious about the distinctive character of places and people. We can think in terms of territory or space. Our curiosity and thought processes include the essential qualities and dimensions of geography. Even non-geographers often possess a fundamentally accurate idea of what geography involves. And I think 
most of us are geographers. We just don't realize what it is we're doing by nature. Um, but just our own our our own curiosity about the world, about the people, about the places we live. You know, walking down the street, maybe why does the street look like this? Or why did the street look like a hundred years ago? Or who built that bridge? Or why is this agricultural farm? Why are they growing corn here and not wheat? You know, all these are fundamental geography questions that we do as human beings, but there's an actual academic discipline for it. And what I normally tell people is geography and you know, geo, the world, and graphy describing the writings of the description, the written description of our world. Um, so what geographers do is describe our world, and there's sort of three camps to this, or two camps mainly. There's the, the human environmental, and human environmental can be how do we as humans use the earth in terms of uh, for food? How do we grow food? Why do we grow the foods we do? How do we grow the foods we do? So agriculture is huge. How do we use rivers? Do we put build dams? Do we treat them as waste sites? Um, where do the, the materials come from in our books, in our houses, wood? You know, so how are we as humans using the, the natural resources we have on the planet? Uh, and then there's another field to that, and it's more the human side. And the human side looks at why do we eat certain foods? Uh, what do the values of foods mean to us? Um, sort of a bit like anthropology, but what geographers are more interested in, the underlying is the space component to it. Uh, and dealing with space, is there a spatial pattern to it? For me, that's cities. So how do cities, how do foods express themselves in a spatial way in cities? We can go around a city and realize that certain parts of cities are known for food, uh, foods um, and for certain types of foods. If I want to do tacos, I'll go to the east side of the city, you know, for example. So there's a spatial correlation with our food, uh, but there's a spatial correlation with everything in human geography. And then sometimes with these spatial issues, it falls into uh, issues of territoriality. Well, you can't do that here because I'm here first, or city code won't allow that, or zoning won't allow that. You can't do that here because X, Y, and Z. If, in my opinion, it looks ugly, or in my opinion, it's unsanitary. And then you find out when you study a lot of urban geography, a lot of the policies you see in cities are from opinions from you know people with the most power in the city. They get their way, and that more or less shapes uh, to a degree. It shapes what our cities look like, what you can do where. So anyway, that's my. Uh, geography intro that was uh, helpful no it helps to to understand your, your your frame of reference and and part of this you also evolved into sort of being an urban planner at least for a while I, I did um, so I did my undergraduate well, I was actually originally pre-med in history, and I kept going into the geography department because I found the classes there so fascinating. And and I remember two of the classes that really got me interested in geography is one was the geography. I went to the University of Texas undergrad, 
And one of the professors there taught, taught the geography of Texas. And he looked at all the different ethnic groups in the state, German, Mexican, Czech, Eastern people, and was, uh, uh, wasps that moved into the eastern part of the state. And he had this whole chapter on food and how the food was different from region to region across Texas. And then how in certain areas of London, where you could be in New Braunfels area, you could see German foods mixing with the, um, Mexican foods. Um, the other classes I took were... Um, urban geography, and I was blown away that there these classes about cities, how cities work and function. And it was like every, it was very enlightening that we're sitting here in a class studying cities. And we're mainly studying American cities, but I thought that was fascinating. And I decided that I wanted to do a master's degree, but I thought a master's degree in geography at the time was um, not going to be helpful if I wanted to get a job afterwards and I was more interested in the policy issues of it anyway and I wanted to work in the city so I decided that well it's like well basically urban planning is geography only it's sort of professional applied geography you're actually trying to figure out how to write code and how to write policies and know the laws, the environmental laws. Um, so it, it, city planning was an applied geography. So I did that instead. And then after, and when I did that, I went to Ohio State. And Ohio State had a great program at the time. They wanted to pay people to go to school there. So I was like, great, I'll move to Ohio and you can pay me for my degree. And they give you a job working for a planning department and I ended up working for the city of Columbus's planning department. One of the things that I picked up from reading most of your book, I would say I, I'm, in, I'm in the 85 to 90 percentile, but was there's taco trucks, there's push carts, there's gourmet trucks, and, and they almost have almost their own sphere especially the way the urban planners looked at them. Yes. Um, so I started when I was in Columbus in 2004. That was when I first came across the taco trucks. I had I'd never heard of them before. And that was because someone kept complaining to our city department that they were there. He's like, I don't like, he's like, they're unsanitary. They're like trash flying everywhere. It looks bad, it's an eyesore, and you know, they shouldn't, they're probably illegal and they don't belong here. And these are the sort of complaints coming from the city department. So anytime a complaint comes in, you still have to go out there and look, and you, what you find out is like, well, they've paid the health department, they're paying their taxes, they are doing everything by the law, and they have the right to be there. And no one can go and tell them to leave. Uh, there's no, and the city's not immigration. That's they're not their job to to do that. Um, so I first learned about the trucks then. Uh, with the city's, well, there were no gourmet trucks in 2004. They started popping up around 2000. I'd say 
six or seven, and those primarily in Los Angeles. The sort of and, and and taco trucks. I'm talking about these are food trucks owned and operated by Mexican immigrants selling Mexican street food to from primarily other Mexican immigrants. Um, where there are other groups of people who realized, hey, that we're in LA actually. And taco trucks there had a longer history, which I came to find out when I started doing the research and writing the book. So, um, so California sort of has a longer history of the food trucks, but you started to see another food truck evolving. It blew up around 2010, 2009, 2000. Between, I'd say, 2009, 2012, it's like food trucks were all over the country. And everyone was writing about them. They're on the uh, the news. Um, they were featured on cooking channels all the time, different chefs, what they're cooking in a food truck. But it was sort of like, well, this is a whole new phenomenon of the food truck. And they sort of, well, they, not sort of, but they just completely dismissed this whole history of the food truck that a lot of it had to do with the, the idea of having food in the truck came from the Mexicans selling the tacos in LA. And the people who had food trucks in LA that sort of started this food truck movement were just taking that idea from their Latino neighbors and doing it for their own foods. And it became very trendy. But these foods were not really, it just became, in every truck, this just became like, well, what's my unusual, what's my thing? You know, it's not traditional tacos. It's like, well, I have gourmet grilled cheese sandwiches, or I have, you know, some sort of ramen soup, and 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 it's not a cheap, quick eat. You know, typically you have to sit down, eat it with the with the fork and knife, and then you'll see tables and chairs outside the truck. So you realize, okay, this is for people who have more leisure time, more money to spend, and, and people who are interested in eating different foods. Um, at the same time, it creates a great avenue for people who don't have money for a restaurant to start their own business and for other people to find new food. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm reading the book recently, I, I seem to come across a little negative on the new trucks because there's a lot of positives to it. However, it's sort of the way the trucks were portrayed where they had no history to them and their history was embedded in and the Mexican street food. Because uh, I kind of got the impression that the that the taco trucks were kind of working, I won't say under the radar, but they were not quite as, um, there wasn't as much focus on them until the gourmet trucks came into being. Is that reasonable? Yeah, that's true. Most people did not like the trucks anywhere. So they didn't, like people complained about the trucks because it, it was tied to the Mexican ethnicity and and stereotypes. So I was like, oh, just a bunch of Mexicans serving tacos and they don't wash their hands and the truck's dirty and and then they let your trash blow everywhere and just a bunch of immigrants eating out all the trucks. And, and then all of a sudden it became a... Uh, the, the the gourmet trucks became cool 
Now, when the gourmet trucks became cool, I'm like, oh, I can go eat an $8 grilled cheese sandwich from this guy. It's really good. Or, but when they became cool, then people started looking at the taco trucks in a new light. They're like, oh, look how cool that truck is. And then I'm like, well, the truck's been like doing that for 30 years. Not new, but all of a sudden it has a new popularity because of newer trucks. Is that more or less? Right. No, right. And and like, you know, from from the way you discussed the, the taco trucks, it's really its whole there it's like the two worlds don't quite meet because you have the taco trucks that are going to factories or into low income neighborhoods and feeding them something inexpensive. And then you put them and then you have the gourmet trucks that you know it's a different bracket. And if you even try to mix them, you know, there there's an issue of who can make any money off of it. it especially difficult for the taco truck because he's going on low, yeah, low price. Yeah, especially if you remember the San Francisco chapter, we have the guy from off the grid, and he's like, Yeah, I really want to incorporate the taco truck, but um, no one really knows what to order from his truck, you know, when they see some cool a Korean barbecue and then they look at a, a taco truck and they see, you know, burrito and they don't really know, or at least, you know, what ingredients are they using? Cause a lot of these fancy gourmet trucks are, you know, buying fresh foods from really nice grocery stores where the taco trucks are like, they're thinking their clientele needs a cheap eat. So they're just buying everything from restaurant depot. Um, so, they're, the, the, the taco trucks are just, they're focused on serving their clientele, which is just fast street food. Now, I, as I recall, you you know, the taco trucks, you know, were either like had a very stationary location where they would stay for an extended period of time, or if they moved, it was symbolic. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, they had some mobility, but like they were the ones that would go like, as I think you said, the factory of the fields, they would go out to the farms, they would go out to the, you know, to industry. Whereas like when you talked about with the um, event driven thing, they were like able to overcome a lot of obstacles relative to mobility or whatever, because it became a special event location. Yeah, so the power of mobility really helps in that way. Right. Especially, I remember when you, you you indicated that they even evaded, let's say, um, the inspectors coming through by working when the inspectors weren't working. Yeah, going into areas where they weren't going to show up, likely. Yeah, and and it, yeah, so the ones in Oakland would often avoid that, and I will say, the cleanest food trucks I found in. And I'll, I'll loop back into the topic here, mobility. But um, there's always people of different varieties where you, you'll hear comments across the street. And, you know, some will say, well, they don't wash your hands, your trucks are dirty, they're full of roaches, let trash blow everywhere. And then you'll also hear people who are like, oh, you're being racist because you're saying that. They're not dirty. They're clean. They're inspected by the health department. 
their food's good. They wash their hands between everything and there's no cockroaches. Um, both those sorts of comments are neither right or wrong because I've seen every kind of truck. <laughs> I've seen trucks full of roaches, no one washed their hands and they're dirty and there was trash blowing everywhere. And I saw other trucks that were super clean and they're following the rules to the T. And, and uh, in places like Columbus, Ohio, where they really didn't move around at all. Uh, and those particular immigrants uh, were very cognizant of being clean and sanitary and making sure their trash is picked up. I'm not saying in every case, but the vast majority of them. Where in Oakland, they were often like, it wasn't so great sometimes. And when the health department came around, then they would drive off you know, to go somewhere else because they didn't want to have to deal with the health department. Yeah. Just go beyond city limits. You know, you want to check your, the temperature of your meat and refrigeration and if things aren't properly cooled or, or warmed or kept at the right temperatures and you can throw everything out. And then they give you a ticket and then they tell you, can't operate for another week or two and that you need to get everything fixed and you've got to come back and see them. And then they're like, well, that's a lot of business I'm going to miss out on and no one's died from eating my food trucks. I've noticed, so I'm just going to drive off and circumvent that. But and then in Sacramento, you would see people, the, the trucks there are pretty, you know, salubrious, but they mainly avoided, it was urban policies that they were trying to move and maneuver around because the city didn't want them downtown. Right? So they had an ordinance in Sacramento that you couldn't have a food truck in the city limits. So then the food trucks were would find ways to either drive around or they would go find um, the exceptions to the rules. They would just go park outside the city limits. Because Sacramento is sort of a weird city in the way that, well, a lot of California cities. And once you start getting to know California cities, you realize what you thought was city is typically not, sometimes is and sometimes isn't the city because your borders are so jigsaw puzzle-like. And then you'll realize you're in a county or another county or another city. And especially with Sacramento, it's just sort of like, so it's had all these wedges that you can, that white is considered city limits. But there are parts of the city where you can be on the main thoroughfare and driving across thoroughfare, but then for like two blocks, you're in the county. And in the county, you can sell tacos on the side of that road, but if you're in the city limits, you can't. And so you'll see trucks parked in little sections like that. And same thing for LA, they would, but LA, I think it, there, it was the county that was enforcing the policies of mobility. Uh, somebody asked from a prior comment you had made, were there issues around trucks that set up tables on the sidewalk, tables and chairs? Sometimes, depending on the city. Um, certain, um, uh, everything has to be movable. So in, in certain cities, they'll say everything that you're selling and doing from it has to be easily picked up and moved within the certain period like you have to be able to pick you up and move it within five minutes and if you had a lot of chairs and tables out you couldn't really do that and 
what you would see in a lot of places where trucks were more permanent, they would just put out these wooden picnic tables. And of course, you know, the picnic table is not going to move very quickly. And you'll see um, code enforcers write tickets for that because you're like, well, you're not supposed to have a table here. Um, um, somebody observed, they said, I know someone who lost a lot of money getting into the truck food business. He hadn't counted on the lifestyle that he was getting engaged in. I guess that would have been a gourmet truck rather than a taco truck. What was the issue again? Sorry. It's not really an issue. He says, I know someone who lost a lot of money getting into the truck food business. He hadn't counted on the lifestyle that he was getting involved in. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the lifestyle, depending on who you're feeding and for what purposes, it's a lot of work. I mean, even when I was working with the gourmet trucks, and the, the, the thing was, is when I started writing about the food trucks, there were no gourmet trucks. I was simply going to try to write a book about the taco truck that was out there on the street. And as I got into the topic, that's when the gourmet truck picked up. And I asked my advisors, I'm like, is there a way I can just ride off the taco truck without bringing up new food trucks? Because it brings up all these other issues I have to address. And they're like, well, you can't really talk about the taco. I mean, like the food, I was like, and he goes, well, that's going to be hard to do. You're going to have to talk about them to a degree because they're out there. People are going to want to hear how they, they, they compare to a taco truck. I was like, well, that's true. And I said, well, this, is going to, this is going to turn my work into three times the amount of work now because now I'm not just going around talking to taco truck owners. I'm talking about talking to taco truck owners and these new food truck owners. And in most cases, these new food truck, you know, the, the new policies and the things that were affecting the new food trucks, the so, sort of the celebrity and the news and how cool they were. Um, those sorts of things impacted the, the taco trucks as well in a positive light. So yeah, I had to address both, but it turned the project into a big project. So I spent time with both taco truck owners and gourmet food truck owners, and the gourmet food truck owners are just working their tails off, and they're sweating, and they're, they're parked somewhere, and they're like, I'm doing breakfast here, and have food prep, and they walk their kitchens down, and then they drive across town, they have to do their lunch, and um, and then they might even do a dinner right? and they go to different events. But you're driving around all day, prepping food, and it's only one or two people working the truck. And so you're going on stops. So and by the end of the day, you're probably exhausted. And unless you're marketing yourself correctly and going to the right places, you may not make any sales. So spend all this time in work and food prep and then not sell anything. So you have to figure out, well, who's my audience? How do I get to my audience? How do I sell to my audience? And all that's a steep learning curve. Um, so, uh, my uh, the, the one of the uh, my advisor suggested to me. He's like, "What about this for your dissertation?" This, of course, the the book was a rewrite from my dissertation. It's not my dissertation. It's it's a rewritten account. But when I was doing the dissertation, my advisor said, like, why don't you do this? Why don't you go open up a taco truck and operate it? And oh. <laughs> I was like, I, I think not. He goes, and you can write about that experience as your dissertation. 
And I was like, no. <laughs> Certainly would elevate the cost of your dissertation, wouldn't it? Well, what happened was the previous um, person that worked with him, and the previous person that worked with him was studying uh, hot rods or um, low riders, not hot rods, but low riders, um, Mexican low riders in East Austin. And what he did was he actually went and um, joined that hot rod group of Mexicans or Latinos who went around East Austin and got into their social circle in terms of what is important to them culturally. And then he's, he also, he, he found a job similar to what these guys did. And it was for him being a, um, a checkout person at the grocery store because he wanted to fully integrate himself into their to their world and and he built he, he saved up money and and bought himself a car and make, turned into a low rider wow yeah and so it took him like three years of but he, he would talk about how much time you know you know it's like i have to leave i was like okay i'm not sacrificing that much because he sacrificed a few years of his life not to mention working, you know, as a, uh, he would, I mean, he had other revenue streams, but all the money he made, he tried to, you know, I pay for his apartment in that neighborhood and then to save up so he can buy, you know, the right, the cool sort of pipes that go on it to buy the tires and wheels. And cause they have, he, why he didn't understand really when he went into the research. So he didn't understand how, these guys who work as mechanics or in grocery stores have these low riders and how they're able to afford these low riders. So, um, and why certain things meant so much to them. And a lot of it had to do was like, well, if your identity is based in one of these low, uh, lower end sort of jobs, that's not seen elevated in society and when working on cars or washing cars or checking people out of the grocery store, their whole values are tied into their cars and what they would do, what, how much, they, how much, how long they would have to save up so they could buy these things. And he's like, so a lot of things, so he said, give me an argument. And it's like, you know, a lot of people say, well, they, they go and they just blow all their money. They don't know how to save money. And he goes, well, they're very good at saving money. They just went and bought the thing that was, they found the value to their identity. Wow. So, yeah, so so I guess I guess asking you to start your own food truck was not a big stretch. I'm like, well, where do I start in that whole realm? You know, like do I start? Do I just go take my savings and buy a food truck? And then like I'm not the average immigrant, you know. So then you have to take into context with like well, where's my money coming from? You know, do I have a do I, do I have a leg up? Do I have do I have more knowledge of American marketing? You know, like maybe I'll use better ingredients and go sell, uh, you know, or do I just use the, like, the what to, who, who do you compete with? Who do you move your truck to? You know, I could probably like a gourmet tacos, have better quality tacos, but I would be just selling it to the Anglo side of the city and I'd make a ton of money. Uh, that would be the purpose of, you know, being an immigrant, I'm like, and I always have an issue about research anyway, because you can't really fully develop into someone's economic status like that. 
it's almost sometimes it's it, it borders on offensive sometimes that you, you can come to you come from this nice place and you have enough time to just leave your life and go and 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 do that but at the same time but you really are interested in something. So you can argue it both ways. That was very interesting because uh, uh, my sister has a PhD and she went through several committees because people kept dying or retiring and each one had a brilliant idea that was very different from what she had already done. So I, I could see where that all goes. Um, it was asked, did other types of food trucks have the same issues as the taco trucks? And I'm going to put myself on hold to try to find somebody to take care of a dog. Uh, other types of food trucks have the same issues as taco trucks. Um, as in the, the gourmet food trucks. Um, I think to a degree they ran into especially if you got into like sacramento where they didn't want any food trucks in the city they did and they sort of got lumped into one category because in sacramento the restaurant tours who owned all the restaurants downtown they didn't like any food truck, period, taco truck or gourmet truck, because they were impeding, you know, they were taking over their territory. They're like, well, many of the restaurateurs believe that if there's a taco truck or a food truck of some sort sitting outside the restaurant, they're not going to go into the restaurant. They're going to go and eat and, at the food truck, and that's going to cut into their business. Um, so part of policies in Sacramento was to get rid of food trucks everywhere in the city. And they sort of lumped them all together, the, the gourmet food trucks and the taco trucks. And most play, and I think they all have, um, so to answer the question, I think they all, every truck, individual truck from one another and taco trucks as a whole, and then gourmet food trucks as a whole, I think they all have different sets of issues. However, often when the urban planners or the city policymakers are making regulations, they don't realize that these trucks have different sets of issues or priorities or, and therefore they just, it's carte blanche rules and regulations across the board. So when you have cities making policy for food trucks, they're not saying, well, this is for taco trucks and this is for gourmet trucks. You're like, that's for all food trucks. So at that level, I would say, yeah, they all Yeah, and then that turn, and in that case, many of these trucks are fighting the same issues and, and they're fighting them with the city. And it's often about where they can park in town. But then again, um, like in Columbus, when uh, when the food trucks are like, well, we really we really want to park downtown, or we want to park here or there. Um, the the Mexican community just is, it doesn't, or even Sacramento, the, the Mexican community sort of doesn't know the conversations that are going on. Partly because the the language barrier, and they only hear about oh, this policy is coming up against food trucks in the city. So you'll see some food trucks go protest, but the taco truck 
owners are not there. Even though these issues affect them, they're not able to go argue against the city for their for their uh, for their beliefs. Because one, they don't, they may not know about, and two, their Spanish is probably they only know Spanish, so they don't know what's going, what is being said in English. Policies that are affecting them, and um, finally, many of them are non-documented immigrants, and they feel if I, I they feel like they don't have a voice. So many, even if they could speak English, they're just like, oh, I better not go because immigration might be there. You know, they're scared all the time that they might be deported or that they don't really have a right to say anything in that city because they're not they're, uh, they're not a citizen of the country so they feel like they don't have a voice in any matter because one of the things i thought was interesting was um in, in one community where most of the people even if they didn't have a business license they they still had the the food safety licenses um and you know just because the licenses, I think largely because I think these, as you mentioned, you know, these food gourmet trucks kind of brought up the cost of everything. And they're a very, you know, low cost enterprise when you do tacos. And these other people are selling something for eight, nine, ten dollars and they're selling for a buck or two. Yeah. It, it really is a problem. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting was you, you, you highlighted it in, in Austin, Texas, but it was also highlighted like in a, a African-American neighborhood in Columbus, where people thought that they were eating authentic Mexican food, not realizing that the vendors had been tweaking the food to please their client base. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Lydia, who I wrote about, she had a truck on the west side, but she was constantly getting harassment over there. So she moved her truck to the east side and turned out to be a black neighborhood and she just loved that neighborhood. Um, so, but I noticed when I was interviewing her that her menu was completely covered up. Half the things on it she wasn't serving anymore. When I asked her about that, and she told me, she's like, oh, well, people over here want different things. People here want the grilled chicken. They don't want the, because uh, I can sell the grilled chicken, but I can't really sell, uh, or they like flautas. She's like, they like fried things, like the, the chicken flautas. But she's like, when I do my uh, tacos, rojos, potosinos, she's like, they don't order that. She's like, but they order a lot of those chicken dishes and tilapia dishes and fried Mexican food dishes. So basically she changed her whole menu for that. Whereas I think the person in Austin thought that they were eating authentic Mexican food, but I think you you pointed out like the breakfast tacos and things like that were things that were introduced because I, I remember visiting Austin in the early 90s and going out for breakfast tacos. Yeah, uh, Austin's a huge breakfast taco city and it's in the and it's a very Americanized breakfast taco. And when I'm in Mexico, I don't, I mean, people do, you know, migas and tortillas. And occasionally you'll come across a breakfast taco, but it's not like an Austin breakfast taco. It's like every Mexican venue in Austin serves a breakfast taco. 
and it typically is um, scrambled eggs with um, some cheese on it. You're not going to find the cheese part in Mexico on the breakfast taco. You might find scrambled eggs mixed with some peppers um, and onion, but not the not the melted cheddar cheese. And, and then it's served typically in a flour tortilla. And, and Austin's had breakfast tacos for as long as I've been in the city. Um, it's a sort of unique to Austin. It's probably one of the better things in this town. Um, but yeah, there's a food truck around the corner from me and he's still there. And he's actually the owner He's from Michoacan, and he came when he was to the United States when he was like, um, he said when he was like 16, 15 or 16, and he moved to Chicago. And in Chicago, he worked for his uncle at um, at this sort of uh, just uh, uh, Michoacan Mexican place. I, I forgot what neighborhood. He said we just serve traditional sort of what was Chicano Mexican dishes to Mexican immigrants. And he said it wasn't really, he said my uncle's from Michoacan. He said, but it wasn't Michoacan food. It was sort of a hybrid food for that Chicago immigrant clientele there. And he said, that's where I learned to cook. And he said, we used to make burritos there all the time because people would ask for burritos. And he said, then I, he said, I met my fiance there. And she was studying to be a nurse. I said, she's a smart one. I cook tacos and she's studying to be a nurse. And as soon as she graduated, she got a job in Austin. And so we moved here. And then I started my own truck. And he and I said, well, what were, like, what were some of the differences between going to Michoacan to Chicago to Austin? He said, well, so Michoacan, you've got like a you know, plethora of foods. And then you get to Chicago, it's kind of narrowed down to sort of tacos and burritos and, and, and things for, you know, the working class to hurry up and eat and get out cheap food. And he said, I come to Austin and he said, you know, I had to tweak everything. He said, because he said, everyone here, and he said, I get to Austin and people keep walking up to my truck and like breakfast taco, or my breakfast taco. I'm like, what's a breakfast taco? Everyone keeps asking me for breakfast tacos, so I better put them on the menu. You know, and he said, now I have breakfast tacos and I sell the most, and he said, all it's all, he said, he told me, it's all the gringos want breakfast tacos in the morning. <laughs> he said in the afternoon, it's like the, the work workers uh, are coming in uh, for their lunch or their barbacoa tacos on corn. And he does corn and, and flour tortillas. And because Texas is um, a corn and flour tortilla sort of state, and in northern Mexico, you have a lot of the large, like the Durango, they would have these giant flour tortillas. And my grandmother was from Mexico, but she lived her whole life in the town just the south of here. She would always cook both corn and flour tortillas. So in, in Texas, the we're constantly we always eat both tortillas here. And people argue over which one they like the best, but no one ever says that one's authentic and one's not. <laughs> and of course, with the the tortilla history, um, 
you know, prior pre-Columbian periods of Mesoamerica, there was about 260 different types of corn. Blue corn, red corn, orange, you name the color, the corn existed. And every town had its own corn. And they all had different types of tortillas, blue corn tortillas or red corn. And, and even today, you can go to Mexico City in the markets and you go look at the corn section, you can see every color of corn. And there's still many varieties of corn. And you have all these amazing corns that make tortillas in Mexico. And when the Spanish came, they didn't really care. Well, they didn't really care for the corn. They wanted wheat. They wanted the bread. So they started trying to grow wheat. But given, and this gets back into the, you know, I mean, all this is geography. So we have the Spanish coming over to Mesoamerica. And they're like, well, we want our bread. And so we need to grow some wheat. So they start trying to grow wheat, but it doesn't really grow anywhere in Mexico except in the northern part. And that's sort of where it took hold. And and then it still all ended up in the shape of a tortilla and never turned into bread. Um, and it eventually turned into bread because uh, and that they could never really figure out how to grow the bread except for the, the friars until the French came. And then the French came with their bakeries and whatnot and increased demand for wheat and better quality wheat. So the wheat tortilla very much being Mexican is normally found in the north. And in Texas, you'll find both corn and flour tortillas. That's very interesting. Now, I also recall, you know, when the there was that group off the grid, the not-for-profit that was helping uh, people, let's say, with their marketing. One of the things I thought it so interesting was how the Mexicans initially were looking for what were the food the Americans would eat. And the people from off the grid would kept redirecting them to what do you do best? What are your local specialties? Now, was that more like, was that really taco truck or was that like gourmet truck or was that really just, you know? Uh, I don't think that was off the grid. I think that was La Cocina. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, that's what I meant. They had it right next to each other. As much, um, yeah. So La Cocina, but they were um, sort of an incubator there in the mission, and they're trying to help the little push carts in uh, San Francisco. It, it, it's just a weird thing because you had this uh, nonprofit organization which was designed to help Mexican immigrants with their foods. Um, and the whole time they're like, well, you need to make money out of this. And, and, but the mission was slowly gentrifying into very upscale white neighborhood. And it had traditionally been a uh, working class Latino neighborhood. So they were basically telling these food cart people they're like, well, you just can't sell your tamales and your tacos anymore like you need to like up your game like the packaging needs to be better packaging needs to be prettier and you need to find unique things to sell because most people who are moving into the neighborhood now are not mexican they're white and you need to sell to them they have more money they got your margins look greater and you need to make more money by selling to them so let's help you with that 
And so they were trying to work with people who wanted to take their foods to the next level. So they had a kitchen and a marketing team and some of the top chefs in San Francisco at other restaurants would come in and work with these um, immigrants with their foods. So they were like, well, this is why I really like to cook. This is one of my favorite things. But they're like, well, okay, well now we need to learn how to package it. We need to like kick it up a notch with the marketing. So they come up a whole marketing idea behind it. Is what you would do for any, like, uh, basically if you're doing any really big new concept restaurant in any major city, like New York, San Francisco, or LA, they were giving all those resources to immigrants who were just selling street food and trying to elevate their food so they can make more money by selling it or going to the farmer's markets. And then, but they had to have a monetary goal in mind that there were always going to be street food vendors that they were eventually going to own restaurants. And it was just a stepping stone so that they could grow their business. Yeah. Because, well, like somebody here, not that this has not seen a food truck on the far north side of Chicago. You know, they, they go wherever the, the business, but then, you know, you have food truck events, you know, like in Evanston, Highland Park. And, and one of the things that was in his book was, you know, some of these gourmet trucks, I'm now just saying for the moment for the gourmet, they would have these events where they would, you know, get a permit and block off a portion of a street or, you know, have it in a park or what have you. And that was a way to work around some of the more difficult uh, food truck regulations. But in Chicago, you know, we also have some discouragement from the government, but go to parks the Park District of Chicago has been more lenient on food trucks than the city ever has been. In fact, I remember uh, it was a Kendall and or Washburn. These are culinary schools here in Chicago. Both had food trucks, I believe, by uh, 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 Buckingham Fountain. And I was like, what's that? How are the city so difficult? It's the Park District. A different legal body behaves differently. Uh but, you know, we are in Chicago. What can I tell you? Um, but, you know, you, you're indicated in your book that food truck, taco trucks, taco trucks, which is a distinctly different than from the gourmet, has been in the U.S., you said, since at least the 1970s. And, and what do you think has contributed to their resilience, even when there's all these issues related to immigration and such? Um, I think people wanting comfort foods and that they're mobile so they can circumvent people's, they can circumvent the policies and they can figure out where their clientele is at and get to them. Um, and they can move to their audience. So I think the issue of mobility and people wanting to eat that style of food, they, they, they want the comfort food. Uh, somebody observed there are whole food truck pods in Portland or that, or that they stay in place, those are gourmet ones, though, for the most part. And I remember in your conclusion, you were talking about those pods, I would say not quite entirely favorably, if I recall correctly. Oh, maybe not. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> in Oregon, Oregon is a whole nother mess, especially Portland. And I don't bring it up because I don't want to open up 
yet another can of worms. Um, Oregon sort of like Austin, um, but a little bit different. Uh, Oregon and Austin are sort of the exceptions to the rules. And in Oregon, you have different immigrants who are just like opening up. There seems to have happened to be some sort of, I could be totally wrong by this, but based on my time in Oregon, in Portland rather, and what I was learning about Portland, because I was considering it at a time to be a chapter in the book. Um, and so I was looking for a few things. And what mainly I was looking to see, do they have taco trucks in the city? And if those taco trucks are there, do they at some degree interact with the food truck pods that are downtown or there's nothing there? And what I found out, yeah, there's a handful of taco trucks, Mexican taco trucks in Portland, but they're really not, they're, they're not downtown, they're not part of the pods, and they don't really have any like issues around them. People just sort of let them sell their thing, and nobody really cares. There's no sort of controversy there. Um, and and then the food trucks, which are really food trailers and not trucks, um, and the food trailers, they're all sort of parks. There's like three or four different squares and open squares downtown where they let these trucks park. And these trucks have like, have built in like brick walls where they can back up to where there's a serving area. I mean, there's some built infrastructure around it. And so they're, one, they're not trucks or trailers, the vast majority of them. And they're not very mobile. They just sit there day in, day out. And what was interesting is you had one or two immigrants from different parts of the world and not necessarily um, Mexico. They're actually more European sort of immigrants. We're opening up trucks and then selling. You know, there's a Czech a woman from like Czechoslovakia and she's serving some sort of traditional dish from um from there um there's many uh, uh, eastern european trailers there if i remember lebanese you know israeli sort of so and they're owned by immigrants and it just seemed like a few people had opened the trailer and then they're like and other people know so they're like well i have a unique background of where i moved from and i have my own traditional foods I'm going to open up a trailer too and sell food from my country. I'm from Greece or I'm from Spain and I can serve these croquettes. So it sort of became more of a global uh, food trailer venue. And then with their policy there is that um, you can park anywhere and um, you can in, in Portland, you're considered to be mobile as long as you have wheels on that trailer. So you park that trailer there, and if you got wheels on it, you're mobile. So therefore, you don't need to move as long as you have wheels on the structure. And they allow mobile things to park in lots as long as they want. Um, where so this idea of like what is mobile um, becomes an argument uh, thing. It's like well, if it's mobile. But it never moves. Is it really mobile? Then it's not mobile. Like it should move a, a certain amount of time. So you will see, and like in Sacramento, they would argue that mobility is every ninety minutes. You should, if, if, in order to be mobile, it needs to move every ninety minutes. In Ohio, 
it's every 30 days. Something needs to be moved every 30 days. And I think I write in the book, it's like this immobile mobility. And it's like Jeff Fox, where you go with the, the mobile home. It's like um, you have a trailer home or a mobile home that never moves because there's no wheels on it anymore. Something along that line, those lines. So in Portland, you have all these trailers and they never move. But as long as they got tires on them, they're considered to be mobile and, and it's fine. And 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 people in Portland love those trailers and they want them to go anywhere. And they pretty much um, hype up that rule in their policy. I forgot where I, I read their city policy on that, but it was just like if the trailer or the thing has wheels, it can be parked there for as long as it wants. Um, so as long as they don't take the wheels off, that's the loophole to their to their policy. So in Portland, you sort of get you know a, a different flavor, but it didn't really fit with the taco truck thing because there wasn't. But in Austin, Austin you have trucks and trailers, and here in order to prove your mobility, you have to take your mobile trailer or truck to the health department once a year. And by taking it there, you pro you've proven that it's mobile, that it does move. And so he said, he said, we're kind of we're kind of like Portland, except we need to see that those wheels are still attached and working properly. And in order to do that, we need to see that you drive over to us once a year. Well, when you drive to us, so the health inspectors there don't drive around the city unless you're doing like drop-in checks. Um, and they have all the mobile food vendors make appointments and drive to them. And if they don't see that person come by that year, they'll drive out to them and be like, hey, where you at? You, you know, we're gonna shut you down so you can prove that you're mobile. So the thing is like once a year, there's just a line of mobile food <laughs> waiting to get inspected. And part of their health inspection is making sure that they're still mobile. But outside of that, you can go park your truck or trailer anywhere in Austin but most people don't park along the streets um and no one's tried that what people do is they park in lots they'll find an empty lot and then they'll park about four or five and and just willy-nilly there's no rhyme or reason in portland it's like very neat and they built in like walls so they can have a place to put their trailer here there's a truck here and just all scattered about on some lot and there's there's tables and chairs and it's like a whole food court and that seems to be what works it seems to be what's most attractive so you don't really see them parked on the street and if you do however the mexican we also have a bunch of mexican food trucks here too and they'll park in gas station parking lots or abandoned lots and they're all over the east side and northeast and, uh, and south of here and and I, and I was working on a map a couple of years ago before I got out of this topic, but I was mapping um, Austin's tech because we have so much tech industry here and even more now in this, in the last, I think three months of 30 uh, tech companies in San Francisco Bay area or San Francisco Bay area have left to come to Austin. Uh, so the tech has just been booming but all the technology companies are in the Northwest. So I was mapping the top, the largest 50 companies in Austin, 
tech companies, and then I was mapping the 50, the 50 taco trucks. And it was interesting how, the, now I wish I finished the map because I didn't show you the map, but it was like all the tech trucks or all the tech companies were up here in the Northwest and all the, the taco trucks were down in the Southeast. And it kind of shows you just through mapping uh, and comparing these two things, tech corporations, large tech corporations like Google and Apple, Amazon, um, Samsung, and comparing it to with the taco truck that you can tell, okay, who, who's living where and who's working where. And it's like a lot of the people in the service industry are, who are relying on their tacos, their cheap taco truck eats are on the southeast side. I mean, it sort of, it speaks about the city uh, through mapping these two elements that you would think have nothing to do with each other. But it, when they're in the same urban area, you can kind of tell that there's two geographies here. There's the tech geography, the nice big suburban homes, and then there's the, the Mexicans who are, you know, cleaning the houses doing the lot of painting and building the buildings for the, you know, building those, building those suburbs and building those uh, tech uh, hubs. Uh, they're here too, but they're just in a different part of the city. Uh, Penelope made the comment. She said, uh, this was, I guess, from the 2016 election, uh, hashtag taco truck on every corner. I don't remember that one, but, you know, perhaps that was, you and I saw that uh, a number of people uh, commented on where you could get um, taco trucks in Chicago. It says taco <laughs> truck on every corner. Um, Excellent. Excellent. By the way, do you were many of these? I, I, I'm going to guess this is more of gourmet truck question than of taco truck question, but were there aspirations to, to run a restaurant? Well, I probably... For me? No, not you. <laughs> I meant the, the aspirations of the, the the people who run taco trucks. Yes, many of them did. Many of them wanted a restaurant. That was their dream. But often they have a hard time being approved for a loan and then they have the proper documentation. And by the way, so, uh, somebody in Centerville, uh, Ohio, said a suburb of Dayton, uh, we have food trucks that go from neighborhood to neighborhood, especially on the weekends. Yeah. So. Sacramento um, a lot, too. But, yeah, a lot of the food trucks. And they'll do that in Columbus. And in Ohio, they do that quite a bit because they try to, like, move around the city. Because not everyone's going to eat the same food truck every day. So they try to spread themselves out by going to different neighborhoods every day. Like, oh, today we're going to be in um, in Clarksville, or or today we're going to be, you know, different Dublin, so, or a different little town center around, just to mix it up. And the people expect that after a while. They expect every Tuesday afternoon that their favorite food truck's going to be near them, and they're going to go over and eat their truck. There's almost building a, an ephemeral pattern. Yeah, and if they don't show up or they go on vacation, that's a that's a problem, right? 
So are there any myths that you wished that your book dispelled or? Myths? I, I don't know. I wasn't really setting out to dispel any myths. I was just wanting to write about who these people were that had the taco trucks. And then I had to get into the whole gourmet thing, which um, wasn't, uh, wasn't on my agenda at the time. Um, but I think there's, um, I, I think there's a unique history. And I mean, there, I think there, I try to reveal some things in the book to talk about the owners of these taco trucks that, you know, they have dreams and aspirations too, uh, that uh, they're, they're striving for citizenship, they're striving to uh, make the best foods possible. And many of them are very creative and they want to create different foods and new foods. And they want to show off their culinary skills. And I feel like often when people talk about a taco truck, they just lump it into a little box and they'll say, well, it's just poor Mexicans cooking tacos for other poor Mexicans. And I'm like, well, there's a lot more to it than that. There are people here striving to better themselves. Many of them don't want to just make tacos all their life. Um, you know, some of them want to be in cooking and others want to get out of cooking and just save up enough money so they can open another business or support their family. And that's okay. I know I put you out on today. Uh, by the way, uh, it was set, that hashtag, the tacos on every corner was from a spokesperson for Latinos for Trump. Um, this person suggested the response wasn't quite what was anticipated because there was a loud yes. I don't think people ask those kinds of questions expecting a no, um, but I don't know. Any case, so I, 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 when you visit a taco truck, what's your go-to order? Um, depending on what the truck's known for or where the people are from, uh, if they're from like Jalisco or, or I'll, and they have carnitas, I'll, that's one of my favorites, carnitas, um, barbacoa. Um, goat and lamb, if they have the, the cabrito, the goat, if I can find, if I ever see a, a taco truck that has goat, which is very random, rare and random these days, I'll definitely stop and eat it because it's one of my favorite. And just no one cooks goat much anymore. Goat's sort of a uh, uh, Sunday after church dish anyway in Mexico and mainly Jalisco. And when I would go spend time with my cousins in Jalisco, they were always taking me to go eat goat dishes. And I found a market here in Austin when I first moved back here for a little bit, around 2009, there's this whole Mexican market over on the east side. And they sold Western wear, but there was also like 30 trucks parked there. And they all served goat, and they're only there Saturday and Sunday. I used to go there all the time because it was delicious. And then they sold that lot and turned it into a big high rise condominium. And I have no idea where all these people went. I haven't found them. I need to find out where they went to because I need to go hunt them down again. But um, it also depends on the city and the, the, you get these interesting preferences about corn and their tortillas. So in Austin, I do not really care for the tortillas here because it's like yellow corn. And and I always wondered this, like everywhere I went, it's like everyone's got the same corn. Like and then when you go in the city, like why does everyone have the same corn? 
I'm not a huge fan of yellow corn. I like white corn. I like blue corn. And Columbus, Ohio has white corn. And I went, every truck has white corn and every restaurant has white corn. I'm like, what's going on here? So I finally just drove to the place on the packet and saw the corn and, and talked to the owner. And she's like, yeah, she's like, basically, she's like, um, you know, she's like in the good old days where every town had its own corn and people were sitting there patting the corn. So we don't have time every morning to do that. We need to make thousands of tortillas every morning to be distributed. So you got to pick one corn and, uh, and you need to have it done on the machine and pump them out. And, and then you supply as many people as you can. Just like so often in the United States, every town has like one corn producer. And whoever operates that corn production, they're, they're making a decision on why everyone in town is eating based on their own preferences of like, oh, and, and how affordable it is and how much of that corn can they get there. So her, her the white corn in Columbus, it was her dad who really liked white corn tortillas. That was his favorite and he could get a lot of it at a reasonable price. So you go know, anywhere around Columbus and it's white corn tortillas. So I always enjoy eating Mexican food there because I'm like, well, I really, I like white corn tortillas too. And in Austin, however, it's yellow corn. And I don't really like yellow corn that much, and especially the kind they make here. So often I avoid it and I'll get like a wheat tortilla because you get the option. But occasionally you'll get um, trucks who are just like, we don't like yellow corn either. There's a place, there's another corn place in Houston that makes small batches of this particular corn. And we just buy all our tortillas from them or bread. And we have it delivered every morning from Houston. Like that, or I was like, that's good work, work, but to get what they want, and they're like, and also it sets ourselves apart. You know, there's I talked to one food truck guy here in town, and they do the tortas, the big bread tortas, Mm -hmm. and uh, one guy's like, I don't like the bread, like all the bakeries, all the Mexican bakeries in Austin are terrible. I don't like any of them. He said, my favorite one is at the Arandas Bakery in Houston off of some freeway. And he said, I, and he said, I order all my bread from there. And, every, and he said, every morning, he's like, they, they do a delivery to the grocery store here. for, And I have them swing by my truck and give me loaves of bread for my truck. And there's another truck here, and goes, I don't like the bread here either. He was complaining about it too. He's like, no one can do bread in Austin. Said, None of the Mexican bakeries can do any good bread. He said, so I bake it myself at home every night and have it ready for the morning. So he always bakes his fresh bread. So you'll see people go around, you know, they'll figure out how to, to distinguish themselves in the food world. But I always okay. find one thing interesting, but it's better than the uh, some of the was it Monsanto corn or who? No, not that. No, no, that's the GMO thing. I'm thinking that there's a who, who's the corn company? There's a major corn company in Mexico that serve, that sells the majority of their tortillas in in the United States, and it's all the same sort of corn. And there was this argument that they had ruined Mexican culture and homogenized it down to one tortilla. 
in the United States because you can go to any Mexican grocery store or Walmart and it's the same tortilla company. It's oh. one tortilla. And it's like, so every Mexican now is eating the same tortilla. And they're like how terrible that is for Mexican culture to be reduced to one kind of tortilla when in Mexico there's like hundreds of kinds of corn tortillas. And it was in a book, I don't know if you all have read this, it's an anthropology book on food called Fast Food, Slow Food. And I think it's it's Jeffrey Pilcher who writes this article. Oh, yeah. And he makes the point in the article, well, the opposite side of that is like, if you did not have a company like that, there's no time to get a small batch of corn from Mexico to the United States and have someone make a small batch of that particular kind of corn because all these people are busy working and have a lot of money and it needs to be done fast and cheap and they probably wouldn't be eating tortillas at all if they didn't have that company homogenizing the corn for the for you know so uh they said they would be out they would be without corn he said so do you want me eating tacos with one variety of corn or no tacos at all but by the way, I know you say you come to Chicago with some regularity, and we do have some, we do have locally made taco. What do you think of those? Just out of curiosity. I'm not sure if I've tried it because I don't remember. Okay, you said you're coming in September, right? You can take me to where you, your favorite taco places. Well, I will take you to Berea Zaragoza. Yeah, I haven't eaten. And that's, have you been there yet? It's all goat all the time. Yeah, okay. And it's very popular. Because um, you were talking about the limitations of finding goat. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. When I'm there, always depending on what the purpose is, but I always get, I, I never really get to choose where I want to eat. I'm always sucked into certain places and restaurants. Um, there's, a, there's like a Spanish tapas place that my friends love, and they always take me there. And then there's the, the girl and the goat, which... Um, well, that, there, there's your gourmet taco place. That one, I really, I went there once and I was very impressed with their, 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 their taste. It was amazing. It was good food. I mean, I, I, I eat all over the board, low end to high end. I don't discriminate. Have you gone to Maxwell Street? Mm-hmm. Uh, their, their markets? Uh, well, it's not Maxwell Street location anymore, but it's still called the Maxwell Market. Um, where it's it's every Sunday morning, and there's a lot of handmade Mexican food there, or food from other Latino places. Oh, that sounds good. No, yeah. I'm, you know, it's surprisingly when I get there and I'm presenting on the book or the the movie or whatnot, and I end up not eating any Mexican food the entire time. It's, it's a movie or a Cuban went to a Cuban restaurant. And now this has been so long ago. I don't remember the last time I was in Chicago, maybe six years ago. Um, I've forgotten all the names of the places and the neighborhoods they were in. Now I was told once to try this Italian restaurant by some Italians. They're like, this is our favorite place. You have to go there. And I ate there. I wasn't that impressed. Um, oh, well. Any case, if you're if you like you you have a you have a welcome on my side, especially since uh may, may I say what your current condition is? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So uh, 
he had his second COVID shot yesterday and is not really feeling all that well right now. I'm feeling a lot better right now than I did. An hour ago? Yeah, even an hour ago. I'm, I'm still just groggy. Uh, just, um, no, it hit me around 4.30 in the morning. I just, I, I woke up and I was like, why do I feel like I just got hit by a truck? <laughs> so I apologize. I, you know, if you mentioned it in an email, I just sort of overlooked it. I don't know. I'm so sorry. Well, I could have put this to another day. I, I mentioned it. I was like, I'm going to be fine because my girlfriend had it and she didn't have one side effect. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a tough guy. It's not going to bother me at all. And then I found myself pretty much in bed all day long. And then now, I mean, now I'm feeling, I mean, I don't have sweats and chills anymore. It, it's just, I'm just sort of groggy. And I assume that will be gone by the morning and everything will be fine. But, by the way, the all important question, how many cats and dogs share your life? Um, I have three cats and I have one dog. <laughs> and, and last night when we were talking to kind of arrange everything, uh, I, I had a visiting dog here and my this dog and your dog started to bark at each other. Holy moly. <laughs> Yeah, I had two dogs here last night, and I just have one. But. <laughs> Robert, I want to thank you so much for your time and the vast amount of information you shared with us tonight. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed chatting. With and you and I will be. Because I've forgotten so much about. It. Yeah, but once your mind starts to percolate, then it all comes to the top again, doesn't it? Slowly but surely, yes. But thank you all very much. And thanks for thank you very much. The link to the movie with the password that's on Vimeo, and you can watch. The okay, there, there's yeah, because you're a documentarian as well as a. Well, I used to be. <laughs> right. Well, you you you're you're a man of many codes. You try different things. Oh, exactly. Do certain things. I lasted a few years before I find anything else that interests me. Well, then you must be a bright person because, you know, bright people tend to get bored easily and move on to something else, a new challenge, right? <laughs> thank, thank you again. And like I said, you have an invitation when you come to Chicago, right. if you'd like. Well, um, in person. When we're all, yep. all right. Good night, everybody. Thanks again. Good night. Bye.